Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Hi everyone, Rich here. The beginning of the audio recording from the Sunday meeting glitched. And so before we dive into that, I'm just going to give you a quick 30 second uh, summary of what I'd said so far. I'd explain to everyone that we're in Uh, four big chapters of the book of Revelation over this week and next. It's a a big section and it's very surreal and it's all pretty crazy. And yet we're confident that God was going to speak to us through it. Uh, It's chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. And these chapters, I was telling everyone, are full to the brim of evocative swirling symbolism and illusion that is designed not for us to just grasp it all very neatly and clearly, But really, it's deliberately trying to overwhelm us via our senses and our imagination and our emotions. I was telling people that it's extreme and intense what we find in these chapters and that these talks are hopefully going to let those passages still feel very extreme and very intense. I said that these chapters were full of fire and hail and blood and darkness and locusts that are also scorpions and horses that have got tails that are snakes, and smoke from a bottomless pit, and all this sort of stuff. And it's deliberately designed to wake us up and shake us up. And because of all the symbolism going on in the passages, we're going to need to do a bit of work in these talks, and we might be left with more questions raised than answers given. And I suggested that that was because this chunk of revelation is like all good art and it was somewhere about there that the recording picked up so over to me but that's like all good art and that's what i think these chapters are in a sense good art doesn't tell you three exact points and you go home going oh i have processed the art art speaks to you deeper than that and it confronts you and it changes the way you think about things and it unsettles you and you come back another day and you look at it and it looks different and you think I've never seen that and it's kind of a bit like that now don't mishear me these chapters are true they are real they are an accurate revealing of the sorts of things that are going on in the world all the time but how they communicate that truth is through symbolism As someone has said, it's a little bit less like a news report on the BBC of things that we actually are expecting to exactly see, like, when are the locust scorpions coming? And it's a little bit more like a poetic, explosive, swirling, abstract art installation that you've got to get into and explore. And for the most part, what I want to try and do is just take you into the art installation of these chapters and let you look around and go, what on earth? We're going to linger on that what question for quite a while. Just what's in these chapters? What's it saying? What imagery are we meant to be confronted by? So I'm going to just throw it at you and let you look at it. But then, like all good art, as we see it, it's going to raise questions in us. Questions like why and who and when and how. Why does God do the sorts of things that he does in these chapters? Who does he do them to? When is he going to do them? And how am I meant to respond to go and live for Jesus in Birmingham in light of all of this? But for the most part, we're going to be on what? What is in these chapters? Let's dive in. What happens in chapters 8 to 11 of Revelation? It all starts in Revelation 8, 
verse 2, I saw, it says, the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. If you get lost at any point, what are we talking about? We're talking about seven angels blowing seven trumpets. That's what this section is. And just as if someone suddenly walked in here and went on a trumpet, we would stop and pay attention because something very significant was about to happen. So as we enter these chapters, we stop now and we pay attention. Because not one trumpet, but seven trumpets, which is Bible maths and Revelation maths for the complete amount of trumpets you could need. Seven trumpets are sounded. This is very important. And it's not just a a person or Nathaniel Hughes, who plays the trumpet, if he's here, playing the trumpet. It's seven angels who stand before God, blowing seven trumpets. It's very important. And what happens in chapters 8 and 9 is that you get the first six trumpets. And each one is blown. And after each one, they are followed by a terrifying description of judgment that is poured out upon the world. And I mean really terrifying. Like if you're listening to it today and you think, oh, this is intense, I know. He knows. It is of plague, of battle, of war, as God expresses his deliberate and holy anger at a world that is rejecting him, and as we're going to see as we go through, crushing his church. And so on our tour of the art installation, let's wander over to this bit, which is where the first four trumpets are displayed for us to take in. Just drink in this imagery. It starts in verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, And hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One third, we'll come back to that language in a bit. One third of the earth was set on fire. One third of the trees were burned and all the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One third of the water in the sea became blood. One third of all things living in the sea died one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness, and it made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, And one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark, and one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Let's just pause there. Don't get lost in the detail. Don't panic. Let the imagery hit you. Are you willing to grasp what God is showing us in Technicolor in these poetic chapters? Are you willing to grasp what you're seeing here? In each of these first four trumpets, creation-shaking, cosmos-shattering events of judgment take place. An aspect in each one, maybe you notice, of God's creation, be it the earth, the trees, the grass, the sea, the rivers, the springs, the sun, the moon, 
are deliberately struck in judgment by God. Hail falls. The sky goes dark. There's fire and blood. This is deliberately a huge-scale, massive, sky-falling-in-type judgment scene being depicted. And are you willing to see that? We will get to the important follow-up questions of why we will. But are you willing to see that bit of your Bible and your faith? The first four trumpets reveal God is judging the world. Now that's chapter 8. Walk with me in the art installation to chapter 9, which is what Andrew Wilson, a pastor and teacher in our church movement, calls the single strangest chapter in the whole of the Bible. And over here we find trumpets 5 and 6. And if you're after some simple light relief now... Maybe a couple of uh, watercolours of some flowers or uh, of a waterfall. You are not getting it. Because what we get now is we meet a talking eagle who tells us, basically, that was nothing, guys. Verse 13. Then I looked and I saw a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Translation, you ain't seen nothing yet. Trumpet 5 is found in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 9 and it sees this bottomless pit opened and smoke pours out on the earth and this releasing of locust scorpions, locorpions, with lion's teeth and human faces, and they are monstrous creatures. Again, remember, not a literal thing that we're expecting to appear when an election happens somewhere, but rather a symbolic description, a depiction of what most commentators would say are demonic forces in the world. Evil beings being ruled by Satan, who also gets a decent mention in this chapter, creatures that devour like lions devour and destroy and leave you hungry like locusts do, that cause pain like scorpions do, that attack the church like human beings who are against Jesus often do. And these monstrous demonic creatures are unleashed to pour havoc on people. That's trumpet five. And then in verse 13 to 21 of chapter 9, you get trumpet 6. And you get in this one four messengers. Some think angels, so think, yay, goodies. Some think, no, they must be baddies. Some think it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse from the other week. I've got no idea. It's been a tough week. But these four people are leading an army of 200 million troops on horses. The horses have heads like lions. The horses with heads like lions breathe fire. The horses with heads like lions that breathe fire have tails that are snakes. The tails that are snakes have snake heads that injure and cause harm, and they unleash pain and death on the world. That's trumpet six. Are you willing to drink in the imagery? 
Are you able to see it? Six angels, six trumpets, announcing six ever-increasing and ever-terrifying judgments and terrors and plagues onto God's creation. And just as you think, oh, phew, he's rattling through, we get to the seventh one. And you think, the seventh one, because of how the Bible uses the number seven, the seventh one will be like the resolution and the good one. And the seventh one, like, um, there are six days of work, and then you get your Sabbath. And there's like uh, seven times we're going to march around the city and blow seven trumpets, but then on the seventh one, it's going to all come good. And so the seventh one's going to be great. Let's get to the seventh one. And then you turn over into chapter 10, and there's a totally different thing going on for a chapter and a half. There's this ridiculously perplexing interlude and you go, what? Where's the seventh one? It's like someone kind of pans the camera to a totally different scene for a chapter and a half. Or like if you're in the art installation, someone opens a little trap door, takes you through to a different art installation that's totally different and goes, have a wander around that one for a bit. And you're like, I don't understand. But just like readers of the book of Revelation have to wait for the seventh trumpet, and just like John has to wait for the seventh trumpet, we're going to wait for the seventh trumpet. We're going to look at that interlude and the seventh one, the resolution one, next week. And for now, we're going to learn to yearn for it, but not be there yet. And we're going to sit in the period of the book of Revelation and maybe the period of time where for now it's just really hard, like John. And so what I want us to do is come back through the trapdoor, back into this art installation, and I want us to go around it again and look at it again and look at it in a few different ways and see what else might God be saying in these six trumpets. And I guess ask these questions. Why is this in the Bible? Who does this happen to? When is this going to happen? How do we respond? For the most of the rest of the time, we're going to look at why. Why does this happen? Why does God, who is full of love, do this? Like it's so over the top, isn't it? Feels it. I was practicing this talk, and I was in the, the bit where I said, and then locust scorpions are released by Satan and the smoke. And I turned around, and my mother-in-law, who lives in Bedford, had arrived in my kitchen. <laughs> and you know when you wish, which bit of the Bible could I have been shouting at my toaster when mum-in-law arrived? Like, this feels a bit over the top, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Like, God, do you want to talk about something? Are you okay? Are you okay, hun? crazy, barbaric. Why would God act like this? But I think in this passage you see at least three reasons why in the text, why the God of love acts like this. Not against his love or despite his love, but flowing from his love. Three reasons. Firstly, because his people who he loves are being crushed and are crying out to him. 
here's this thing. The context that we read this book in is Church Central South in the 21st century. And 99% of us are not in a persecution setting, okay? Not in any meaningful sense at all, right? Our community group gatherings in the church are probably not often filled with lengthy calls for vengeance from God to fall upon those who have beheaded our family members for the gospel. Let's just do a little show of hands and be honest because this may have happened to you. But put your hand up if your family members have been beheaded for the gospel. Crucified for the gospel. Ripped apart by animals for the gospel. Just put your hand up, don't be shy. Tied to stakes and burnt for the gospel. Put into concentration camps for the gospel. Abused and dehumanized because, specifically because, of their loyalty to Jesus the Nazarene. Now, most people in Church Central South, though we have real sorrow and sufferings, and I face at times a touch of marginalization for my faith, I get blanked on the school run two out of five days. It's a totally different game that we're talking about here. But for those reading this in first century Turkey, when I asked those questions, hands would go up everywhere. And if you remember in the book of Revelation, they're calling out to God, how long, O Lord, until you avenge the deaths of our loved ones? And so as strange as it seems, what actually kick-starts the trumpets bit of Revelation, the catalyst for the judgments of God being poured out on the earth, is actually a prayer meeting of God's suffering people. Verse 3 of chapter 8, right at the start of this section. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then, as in in response to the cries, the blood-drenched cries of God's people, these cries that have ascended to him like incense, then... The angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. The judgments of God are not random. They are responsive to the call of his persecuted people. And they seem extreme to us. They seem extreme to me. Because most of us haven't had extreme evil come our way because of our allegiance to Jesus. But for these guys, or those reading it now in North Korea, or Iran, or parts of Nigeria, or Syria, or Pakistan, who are readying to die by the time I finished this sentence, they are the people of Jesus, they are his bride, he loves them, and they are being crushed And so just like God heard the cries of his people in Egypt rising up to him, Oh Lord, how long? In the end, he comes and he acts in judgment to vindicate his people. And in the same way, the prayers of the church worldwide 
reach God and he hears and he loves them and so he acts. That's the first reason why. Stick with me. The second reason why God would act like this. Because people are bringing destruction and passivity in the face of evil isn't loving. Chapter 11, which is next week's resolution chapter, with the seventh trumpet, it describes the judgments of God like this. It's time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. God's judgments are a response to the destructive behavior in people that causes destruction and pain and chaos and carnage in the lives of people he loves. God's judgments are intended to destroy destroyers. God's judgments are intended to destroy destruction. And even we know that in the face of destroyers who are being destructive, we're not meant to stand back and do nothing. Even we know that. The other day I was outside my daughter's school and I saw... uh, a man get out of his car and uh, walk to a car that had clogged up all the traffic. It was queues that way, 30 cars, queues that way, 30 cars, no room, and this was the car that had caused it. And in this car, it turns out, was a, a Muslim woman who is new to the UK, doesn't speak much English, and these guys were out of their cars, and they were screaming at her, and they were banging the window. She was in tears. Her kid was in tears. They're shaking the car. They're screaming at her. Another matey comes out. He's having a go, saying his bit. And I'm sat in my car parked next to it. And even me, a weedy, cowardice, pasty child of a boy of a man, knew that it was not loving for me to do nothing. We know this in the fight for racial equality, where we would say phrases like, it's not enough to be not racist, that's too low a bar. We need to be anti-racist. We would say silence is violence. Silence and inaction is complicity in evil. We quote things like, all it takes for evil to thrive is for good men to do nothing. And you might have heard me say, Before Elie Wiesel, who survived the murderous racist holocaust of the Nazi regime in Europe, said the opposite of love, and he should know, is not hate, it is indifference. And praise the Lord our God that these chapters reveal that he is a truly good God. He is not silent, he is not complicit, He is not indifferent. He is not passive. He is not cowardly. He is actively anti-injustice. And if we want to swap out these chapters and this God because it makes our Sunday morning feel a bit awkward and intense, we're actually yearning to swap the one true God for a God who lets evil and destruction run riot and sits there going, Third reason why God acts like this, to seek to bring people to repentance. Repentance means turning around. 
that someone is going that way and they repent is that they turn around and come this way. Why does God pour out his judgments? Chapter 9, verse 20 hints at this. It says, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. It's hinting that one of the aims of God in these acts of judgment, these plagues, these wars, these sufferings that come, is to shake people and wake people up that they might turn around and come to him. And it hasn't seemed to work in this passage because it, it says, and they still didn't repent. And come back next week, you get this really cool little nugget that I've stolen from a commentary on how it is that people then come to repentance in Revelation. It's a beautiful thing, but you can yearn for that for next week. But we can see something of God's heart here. That like in Egypt, remember that story, similar narrative. God's people being oppressed, they call out to him, God sends plagues, but in all of that, he comes and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Are are you willing to repent? Are you willing to turn? Because you can access the mercy of God. You can join the people of God. And, And loads do. They come out of Egypt and it says that there's a mixed multitude of Egyptians and Israelites coming out. Because loads of Egyptians saw the plagues and went, Flipping heck, I need to get right with the one true God. And they turned and they found this God to be merciful to them. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. The same intention is at play in these verses and the same is true today. If you're an oppressor of the church, a mocker of the church, a slander of God's people from within or without someone who's currently set up your life to be far from Jesus, as I had for many, many years, then the invitation in these deliberately unsettling and shaking chapters, the invitation is, are you feeling unsettled? Come to God. Turn to him. And I beg you to do that. If you don't know this God, if you don't know that you are safe when his judgment comes because of what Jesus has done in your life. If you don't know that, please come to God. Please turn to him. There is, as I speak, time to come to him. Come to him. We're rattling through these intense and extreme chapters. And we have a few last questions. Three. Who are God's judgments again in this chapter? The main answer is this. Those who don't belong to God. Chapter 9, verse 4. Only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's the stamp of ownership of God on their life. The people of God in this passage are protected ultimately from the judgments of God Not because we're better than anybody else. But because as Jonathan has been showing us in previous messages, we have taken shelter under Jesus. And he has borne the full anger of God for us. So we are safe. It is not because we think we're better and we think you're worse. If you're here and you don't know God. It's because we know that we couldn't stand and so we've run to Jesus. 
Just like in Egypt, the Israelites, do you remember? When the plagues come, when the judgments come, they are safe if they go into their house and regardless of how they've lived and regardless of how good little religious boys and girls they have or haven't been, if the blood of the lamb is on the door and they shelter there, the judgments come and it passes over them because they are safe under the blood of the Lamb. And so in Revelation, almost every chapter speaks of the Lamb who was slain. And so in the end, these things that are very fearful, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you endure, you don't need to fear these judgments, ultimately. Because we are safe in Jesus. But in another sense, I do just need to very quickly say that these judgments will impact all of our lives. See, when something happens that shakes the earth, a pandemic, an economic crisis, a war, because we are citizens of this world, we get shaken too, right? Have you felt that over the last few years? Both the house that is built on sand and the house that is built on rock are pelted by the storm. There's no force field of hardship protection around Christians. This book is writing to a persecuted, crushed people. They weren't protected from all harm. But ultimately in the storm, those with the seal of God or in Jesus' story, who hear his teaching and put it into practice, will stand, will be safe in the end. Fourth, when will this happen? Like, is this all like 40,000 years in the future, so why are we looking at it? Is this all irrelevant? Some people think that. Some people think it's like a future time when Locorpians are going to appear. I just want you to know, we don't really see it like that. At, at the preaching team here, we're not reading it like that. We think this is an insight, an unveiling, a poetic description of the sorts of things that are going on in the world all the time, between the time that Jesus ascended and Jesus will return. And I think that's why a language of one-third is important. You know, remember that? One-third of the trees, one-third of those rivers, one-third of the fish, one-third of the boats. I don't think that's trying to help us think about the final judgment day. Because on the final judgment day, all creation will stand before God. And there will be implications for the whole of the cosmos. I think this is a little foretaste, a little description, a little hint. In line with what Romans 1 and John chapter 3 of famous, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that anyone who believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. But that same chapter says, but for those who aren't doing that, there's a judgment that's already coming. And we might struggle with that, and I might struggle with that. But if I'm in the Roman Empire watching my kids get ripped apart by lions because I'm a Christian, and I read Revelation and I see that God cares about that today, I'm really glad. That's actually good news. Last one, how? How should we respond? And uh, here's how it's going to work. In about two minutes, I'm going to leave a period of silence for us to just think and be.
and then we're going to sing a fearful chorus. Hard to know what song when I was writing this talk, and it's just going to be a cappella, so don't worry, band. We're going to sing, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. We're going to sing that together. But I ran out of steam, so I've just got seven bullet points. Um, Seven, because that was an accident, but that's great. Um, Firstly, learn to yearn for the seventh trumpet. Next week, we're going to get the resolution, the resolution to the judgments of God on the earth. We're going to see that God's people get vindicated We're going to see that the destroyers are destroyed. But we're not there yet. We've got to learn to yearn. Come, Lord Jesus. Pray for the church worldwide. There will be brothers and sisters in Church Central East who would have put up their hand. There will be brothers and sisters around the world right now who need our prayers. Pray for the church worldwide. Third, turn to God. If you don't know God, you can know God. Won't you turn to God? Fourth, pray for those you love. Fifth, bow down before this God in worship. Because these chapters reveal a fearful God, but a good God who loves his church, will vindicate his people, who will destroy destruction, and who has offered his son as the Lamb of God, so that any destroyers who want to find mercy can. He is to be praised. Six, I think, persevere in your faith in Jesus. If you are under the shelter of Jesus... If you are born into a family that has taught you about Christ, but you're having a little think about it, if you're angry with loads of stuff about Christianity in the church, do not leave Jesus. You mustn't leave him. Stay with Jesus. Deconstruct the heck out of the church and and, and all the bits and bobs of man-made stuff. Find something pure. But don't leave Jesus. And lastly, linger in the art installation. By that I mean, this is not neat points, go home, get yourself some quiche for lunch. This is very unsettling, very arresting. And it's sitting in your Bible. And I want to invite you, now maybe I've given you the the tour guide's notes. Maybe go back and sit in it and talk to God. God, why? God, how? God, is this you? And speak to him about it. Take yourself for a walk around the art installation. A minute of quiet, and then we'll sing.